Welcome to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Nadd, and this podcast is being produced in partnership with High Plains Journal and Great Plains Regeneration. With me today is Zach Stuckey. Welcome, Zach. Hi, Jess. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. You know, with High Plains Journal and the publisher, it really is my mission as a son and grandson to grow or just here in the heart of Kansas that we make sure soil health and our content is always practical and real. And no matter what cropping system you're in, that it impacts your bottom line immediately. Excellent. Healthy soil equals healthy people, planets and animals. And we're excited to be here. All right. Welcome back to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Nadd, and today I'm here with Macaulay Kincaid of Jasper, Missouri. So he's on about 880 acres. He produces a an incredible amount of cash crops, cover crops, corn, cattle, uh, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his nonprofit chicken operation, which which is pretty hilarious. So he's a husband, a father of three little ones, and he has a simple goal right now, and it's to create a successful farming operation for his next generation of family members, but he's not talking about just sustaining this operation the way it is right now. He's talking about regenerating his soil. So, Macaulay, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jessica. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Uh, so not only do we farm wheat, corn, and soybeans, but we also farm nine different cash crops as well. Um, we raise a diverse, like a very diverse cash crop rotation um, of everything from lupins to Korean lespedeza to sunflowers. Um, something we're really trying to hone in right now is uh, companion cropping, you know, not raising one species in one field. So last year we tinkered with that. We raised sunflowers with 12 different species underneath them, harvested sunflowers over the top. We were able to get three cash crops in one year with essentially a cereal grain uh, harvest. Um, we could have taken the straw harvest off to have another crop, but we decided not to. Then we combined the sunflowers over the top of that, and then we grazed cattle after the sunflower harvest. Um, we're also raising some corn with Korean lespedeza growing underneath it, and we're dabbling with uh, barley and oats raised with basilia, turnip, spring peas, and fava beans. Um, you know, we also have, uh, we got around... Oh, 63 or so mama or cow calf pairs right now. It's going, it's going pretty well. I'd say my biggest focus right now on the farm is, you know, we're just trying to actually add more perennial star system and actually increase our livestock numbers. So we got pigs now. We also got around a hundred some laying hens, which I always make the joke that our laying hens are a nonprofit, uncertified, of course. <laughs> so we don't make any money with them, but we, we, we try to do the best we can. And the chickens, they don't get like a high, you know, good diet, they just get all the scraps left over from the grain cleaning. And like I said, you know, we're full no-till operation. We do zero tillage. We're 100% cover crop. If we don't have a cash crop growing, we have a cover crop growing. Um, And we can graze every single farm but one that we farm right now. So really proud of that. Uh, We also custom graze another 150 to 200 uh, cow-calf pairs a year as well. So that's about a third of our income on our farm. That is fantastic, Macaulay. I mean, here's the thing. I'm sitting here and I've, I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with you and your operation. I started taking notes while you were talking and I filled up like a half a page of notes right now. 
I mean, this is just <laughs> phenomenal. You weren't doing this when you got started. So let's talk a little bit about that progression. How did you get started in this? Uh, I guess I start, started renting my first piece of ground when I was just a little bit over 17 and a half. And I moved out out of my parents' house during that time, too. Um, I was renting a farm from a lady named Joetta Kruzikoff. Uh, she she let me farm uh, her land. She kind of trusted me. I kind of had a vision at the time. It was a lot different than my vision now. Um, but, you know, I was, I've always been an avid reader and, and self, I believe in self-education. I mean, that's what I really, truly believe in. But back then it was all focused on, you know, pesticides, um, you know, fungicide, multiple fungicide passes on the corn, wheat, soybeans, uh, using the recreational insecticides so that way I didn't have any bug pressure, using the newest and greatest herbicides to, you know, uh, suppress or to try to control weeds that I was dealing with. And it wasn't profitable. Um, my very first year farming, uh, we had a really good year, my very first year. And then after that, we went through about four years stretch that was really, really tight and we weren't making any money. Uh, the bank at the time pretty much told me that, um, they weren't going to loan me any more money. And I had the good fortune shortly after that to meet Ray Archuleta and Gabe Brown. And I, I started reading their stuff, everything I could find about those guys, anything about soil, I knew I wanted to be a no-tiller because I couldn't afford tillage equipment, but it kind of seemed like the key to no-tilling was cover crops. And and I kind of learned, I think that's true. The key to make no-till work is cover crops, but the key to make cover crops work is cattle or livestock. And so that's kind of the system we went down. Um, really blessed to be able to have some really good mentors over the year. Uh, Michael Thompson, you know, he kind of walked me through how to move polywire every day, like over the phone, because I had never done that. Like, I never knew how to move cows every day. Um, and we became intentional on our farm. You know, we know we knew we no longer looked at the farm in this reduction of science outlook. You know, we just didn't try to attack, you know, one disease or one bug. We kind of focused on the farm as a whole or holistically. I like to use that word. And, you know, we started thinking about the effects that we had on the environment. And it kind of I guess it's kind of a blessing, but so far on our farm, uh our farming economics kind of go along they kind of help the environment along, in my opinion, and they've also tend to be a lot better than they used to be, for sure. Uh, two years ago, my bank notified me and told me that they that we are in the top 5% of people they lend to um, for farmers. And so that was just a huge, like, okay, I think we're doing things right, because that was a pretty short turnaround. You know, that was about four-year turnaround um, from where we were at. And like I said, I, I feel like we're a lot more structured now. We have a budget, a farm budget, which was so important back then. I just used to write checks and not even think about it because I was like, oh, hey, this is supposed to give me 10 bushel. I'll just do it. Well, it didn't work out like that. The first year you go without a rain um, throughout the summer, you know, you pretty well don't have any crops anyways. It doesn't matter how much money you put into them. I'm all dry land, you know, so you just kind of got to manage that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one of my questions is if you're on irrigation out there and, you know, when when you kind of got, I mean, farming's in your blood. It's a passion of yours, and I hear you, and I listen to the sound of your voice, and I can tell that you have a real passion for this. What was the very first thing that you did? Uh, was it when when you take over new ground? Because I've known you over the years, and you corrected me at the beginning of this call and said you're up to 880 acres. When you acquire <laughs> a new piece of land that you're working on, what's that first thing that you do to put to put that those acres into a soil health program? So the first thing I do is I'm not going to try to take off a really aggressive cash crop. So like take soybeans, for instance. Soybeans are one of the hardest things under soil structure. They, they, have, they add too much nitrogen to the system. 
Uh, the microbes use that nitrogen to eat up organic matter, so you actually lose organic matter. So we're already in a terrible situation anyways. Most of these farm bills that we take over have terrible CO2 respiration rates, like 20 to 40 on a Haney soil test. So uh, we typically will use some, a very fungal-dominant plant, such as like if I take on a farm in the fall, we'll put oats or barley in. If we take on a, a, you know, a farm in the, in the summer, we'll put in like an open-pollinated corn or sunflowers. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be just strictly corn and beans. And so I kind of think of everything from that soil context, like you were asking about, Jessica. I mean, when I make any decision on my farm, it's to try to advance the soil and to try to get the soil better. And I believe that we can we can do that. I mean, some of my very my longest running no-till cover crop farms that we have animals on, my organic matter is around three and a half percent. Now that's not great compared to some places, but you got to remember we're in the south, so we're cycling so much longer than people up north. The folks up north can build organic matter faster than we can, but I can build biology faster than they can down in the south because our our, our uh, growing season is longer. Um, so both sides have their advantage, but yeah, I just tend to if we get a new farm. We try to really focus on what nutrients are there. We'll pull handy soil tests, see where we're at, PLFA, see what the fungal to bacteria ratio is. We'll address nutrient concerns. Um, we don't over-apply nitrates or phosphorus. Uh, this past year, we only applied phosphorus on 50 acres on our whole farm, and that's all that was called for. Um, I'm not against potash and phosphorus. I just don't think that we really need it. Uh, when we pull, a, we'll also pull what's called a, a nutrient digestion analysis. We'll pull that in the top 12 inches of soil, and that'll show us kind of like what our bank account is in the soil. And what we're seeing on average is we typically got around 9,000 pounds of organic nitrogen, uh, 12,000 pounds of organic phosphorus, and normally around 30,000 pounds of organic potash in the top 12 inches of our soil. So we got plenty of nutrients there. The problem is we just don't have the biology to cycle those nutrients. Um, also, another one of the things I do is if I can, after the cash crop's over with the, that first year, I like to get my cover crops in early. So if I go to oats, I'm going to go with a big warm season cover crop after those oats and try to graze that if the fencing's there to really speed that system up. Anytime you can integrate animals in your grazing or in your row crop system, it's just going to make everything, you know, twice as fast. It's going to multiply your biology. I mean, think about cows as gigantic biological primers. As they graze across the land, you know, if we keep them in tighter paddocks, like I move my cows every single day religiously, when we keep them in those narrow paddocks, we're kind of sequestering all that manure and urine and slide in those areas. So that can actually help build up soil respiration rates, help the nutrient cycle. Uh, earthworms need a higher protein diet. So manure paths tend to be higher protein coming from a cover crop mix. And so then the system can kind of start to reboot and start to regenerate. That's phenomenal. Like, how did you have time to study all this? How did you figure out all of this soil <laughs> biology? I mean, you're a sponge and I know you're, I know you're a young guy and you're a smart guy and you know, you kids probably keep you up all night. So you have a lot of time to do some reading, but you know, <laughs> how, like how, how did you develop all of this? I think it's just phenomenal. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, uh, self-education, I don't sleep very much, maybe three or four hours a night, maybe. Um, if that, I don't know, maybe not in quite that sometimes, but you know, if I'm not physically on the farm, you know, I'm trying to educate myself in something. And, you know, it's kind of funny. When you start going down the path of soil health, everything else in your life starts to change, too. You know, you try to start being a better father. You try to start eating healthy. You try to create a better foundation for your children. So as I'm regenerating my soil, I'm also regenerating my family. 
And that's been a really key part of this. And, you know, I'm happy to say, or I guess I'm blessed to say that we're very lucky. Um, this past year, we our farm was the best year we ever had. And we were able to take on someone full-time on our farm now, a full-time hired hand. And so now we're supporting him and his family. So it's just a wonderful process. Um, and like I said, I guess, you know, there's some great resources out there that are free. I had really good mentors. So if I had a question, I could normally call them. But, you know, you don't have to be really that smart to understand this stuff. It's, if you just follow the principles of soil health, everything else just kind of falls, you know, into that. I mean, you don't really have to know, you know, this plant's more mycorrhizal friendly than this plant, or this plant does a better job of making P and K available or whatever. If you just focus on the principles, you can learn off of those principles and make the system work. And that's just been my personal experience. You know, every single one of our podcast guests, have talked about the principles of regenerative agriculture. And I think a lot of people just echo what you say, follow the principles. And within the principles, there are multiple practices that folks can use to achieve these principles. I mean, that's that was my big takeaway from learning from, from Gabe and Ray and even from guys like Michael Thompson, too, is it's the principles. It's the principles, right? Yes. Yep. <laughs> I can, you're talking about your kiddos. I can remember the the early stages of when I was I was like a sponge and trying to listen to everything and driving down the car with a pot driving down the highway with my kids in the car and had a podcast on and I remember my son was really really young and he pointed out the window and said mom look at all that tillage you need to call Ray <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's funny what what all of us are absorbing you know yep. Yep. It's all about what you surround yourself with. You know, my son, uh, he's, he's kind of like a leech on me. Uh, uh, you know, I guess I maybe I shouldn't use that term, but he likes to be around me, you know, so much and wants to be involved on the farm. Um, it's so great, you know, whenever it's the, it's the summer or, or spring, summer and fall, and I get to get, get the kids out on the, on the players and we go move the cows or, you know, go collect the chicken eggs or, or whatever, you know, it's just, it's a really, really good humbling experience. And then the kids get to understand where their food comes from. I think that's so important. And, I feel bad for a lot of kids in public school. Our kids go to public school, and, and a lot of the food that they eat isn't really what I would call food. Um, and so it's really nice that my son, he gets exposed to the farm to see where food actually comes from. Yeah. We really care about what And like I said, it just, it's all, it actually all spawned off of the soil health thing. It wasn't originally like that for me. I would eat McDonald's or whatever kind of crap I could find, you know, that was cheap. Um, but I'd say we probably spend... We probably spend we spend way too much on food. Probably, if I had to guess, it's it's probably up there on what we spend in food every year. No, we're <laughs> the same way, Mac. And I think you know, uh, Ray talks about re- regenerating hearts and minds at the same time, and and that's what this is all about. This is bringing that power back into our small communities, back into our rural communities, back into our school systems. Um, funny story. My son's a sixth grader and we, we lived out in the country for many years and now we live in town. Well, he goes to a school in Manhattan, Kansas, and right across the street is the K-State agronomy fields. And so mm-hmm. their math teacher takes them over and he told me at conferences, he said for years, I would just call it plant number one, plant number two, plant number three. And she, and he said, your son, for the first time we walked over to that field He's like, no, this, these are soybeans. This is, you know, this is cotton. This is corn. And he was just blown away. He's like, I've never had a kid that could identify crops, you know. So yep. I think you're right. You know, this whole regenerating our ourselves 
and our the the environment around us was really key. Okay, so I thought when you and I were going to talk, my topic was going to be farming profitably with no-till and cover crops, but you said something earlier, and now I'm going to have to pick your brain. Okay. Let's talk about, because you talked about food, and we talked about people, you know, knowing where the food comes from. Let's dive deep into the biological primer, which okay. is your cattle. <laughs> so let's talk about your yep. cattle. Tell me, you know, because I've had okay. a lot of producers tell me that that's the key to this system. Yes, it is. Um, you know, cattle can do so much for the land. And I'm going to go into some theories of mine that I really don't have any data to back. But just what I've observed of my land, I believe it to be true. So the first, the first thing I want to talk about is, as we all know, healthy soil tends to have a fungal to bacteria, a fungal to bacteria ratio of 1 to 1. Most of our farmland in my area typically seems to be around 800 to 1. I know in other parts of the world, it's about 1,000 to 1 bacteria to fungal, um, but we want to be closer to 1 to 1. And also, just to reiterate, the reason why it's like that is because of tillage. Every time we till, we force oxygen the soil. We had this huge microbial burst. The R strategist bacteria start eating and consuming ba- uh, organic matter and making those nutrients available. So cattle, um, I believe that cows have a microbiome of fungal bacteria ratio that's almost one-to-one. It's almost perfect. Because the very first time I ever put cattle on row crop land, I started seeing mushrooms the very following year. And I had grazed for about, I believe it was around 100 and some days, um, maybe a little bit under 100 days. And, you know, we were we were running high stock density grazing, you know, around 150,000 stock density. I mean, that's not ultra high, but that's kind of what averages on my farm probably. And we've seen that. We've seen mushrooms in all the cow paths. And so that was my first clue. I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to that. Okay, then as you observe how a cow walks, you know, some people say cows cause compaction, right? You've probably heard that. That's completely yeah. false. What we found on our farm is after the very first rain, if you take a penetrometer out there, the compaction levels are way under half of where they were right before the rain. And you think about that, soil is a subaquatic ecosystem. If you provide water through rain, that biology just ramps up, right? So cows, when you sequester them in tight areas, all that biology is then in those said areas, and we get this rain, it just explodes. So the cow hoof, if you look at the cow's hoof, how it's designed, when they walk, it spreads, right? And I believe mm-hmm. what the cows are actually doing is they're actually pulsating the soil. They're causing the soil to stimulate the seed bank, to stimulate biology as they walk. So those are two things that not very many people talk about. Of course, the third we all know is, is the value of the cow path. So cow pats around 0.24 units of nitrogen, 0.15 FOS, and 0.18 potash. Okay, that's typically around where they're at. So when you think about that and you're pushing all that, you know, in really tight areas, you know, maybe like two-tenths of an acre a day or whatever you're running, depending on how many cow-calf pairs you have out there, you know, you're talking about tons and tons of manure applied, you know, in a 150-day grazing period. And plus, if you give those plants proper rest, they're going to pull more carbon from the atmosphere, excrete more carbon in the soil to attract in more biology so then they can regrow back. And so that's, that's how the system really, really, I guess you could say ramps up is if you give them, if you give the plants proper time to rest and recover, and we're talking about cover crops here, but that's the same applies to perennials. Uh, and then it's, when the cows come back, they stimulate those grasses again. The grasses stay vegetative. Plants that stay vegetative longer actually excrete more carbon in the soil because they're not going to flower or, or to head. 
Um, if you're grazing a warm season cover crop mix that has sorghum sedan grass in it, there's been some really good studies come out out of the University of Kentucky. When sorghum sedan grass has been grazed, it actually excretes 33% more carbon back in the soil after it's been grazed. Uh, wow. Same thing we see with like sunflowers. It's amazing. You know, you graze sunflowers and, and then all of a sudden the sunflowers poke out more heads, you know, down below the, like, you know, below where they typically would. It's the weirdest thing. So there's just a lot that cattle can bring to the system. It's, it's probably an hour long conversation in its own, but I mean, they are really one of the keys in my opinion. So that's why you, you move the cattle daily. It's for that rest and recovery. Are you a, is it a take half, leave half situation when you're doing that daily or how do you determine the daily moves? Yeah. So it depends on a few different things. So um, number one is what I'm trying to accomplish with that said paddock. So let's say, let's talk perennial pasture just for a quick second. Let's say I've got an area that has some really bad, you know, blackberries. Okay. I, if I put my cows tight enough or in there for long enough, they'll actually graze those blackberries down and stomp them down. And then if I give that, maybe I skip a ro- in the rotation. So a 60 day rotation goes to 120 day rotation. Now I'm starting to see some grasses and some forbs come up where those blackberries were. So it really depends on what I'm trying to do with the cows. If, if I'm just, if I have really good land, it's flat, it's not wet, I would like to run around that 150 to half a million pound stock density just because the moves don't have to be as frequent. When you start going up to 750,000 or a million pound stock density, you really have to start moving them quicker, like maybe six, eight times a day, which we've done and we documented the benefits of that on our farm. But, you know, just from a practical application, I would rather just do one or two moves a day. I, I, I actually, tip, I, I like, I enjoy moving cows. So some people think it sounds like a chore, but I believe it's, you know, I think in like a row crop situation, yeah, cover crops are great, and you have to have them for the whole system to function. But one that's overlooked so much is the cattle aspect or the livestock. It doesn't have to be cows. It can be pigs or chickens or sheep or whatever, you know. But, um, yeah, that, that, that's kind of my opinion, I guess. That's just- I love it. I, I, I was laughing because I thought of your nonprofit chicken operation. <laughs> your chickens give you a – they give you a good donation, though, I bet. <laughs> I yeah, bet yeah, they do. I that. That's awesome. Yeah, okay, we, so we get the hauled out. Yeah, go on, go on. I was gonna say, we yeah, get the, we get like five gallon bucket loads of eggs. It's, it's a lot of fun. See, that's not that. That is, there's some valuable lessons and kiddos out there collecting eggs. I have been there, and I I understand a lot of the lessons. You you win some, you lose some out there, and and actually, that sometimes is a take half, leave half too. I know we've had many of a times heading back to the house where that the eggs are just dropping. When the kids yep. are holding them. So, okay, I want to I wanna kind of round things out because, you know, you talked a lot about being able to absorb this information. You're highly observant. You know, you're, 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 digging, you're digging a hole in the sand, digging the hole in the soil, um, and really just observing a lot. So what tests do you find valuable right now um, to help you make decisions? And then do you have some where you're still trying to figure out? So... I guess from a physical test standpoint, but we use the handy soil test to kind of manage our nitrogen levels for our grass crops, such as like wheat, oats, or corn, or milo. Um, that's typically the only time we use the handy soil test, and that has a very timely effect of how we use that to try to get a better idea of what we need. Um, we also use plant tissue samples. Um, we also use forage analysis of the cover crops. So what we'll do is the day we plant, I'll just kind of give you an idea of how the corn thing works. I won't go into great detail, but just kind of how it works. The day we plant corn, 
we pull a forage sample of the cover crop in that area. Then we also pull a handy soil test, okay? Results typically take about two weeks to come back from Regen Ag Lab. We get those results back. Now, we typically need to put on about 40 units up front until about V4 is what we apply. Uh, when, V4, when V3 rolls around, we're going to pull another handy soil test. And 45 days after termination of the cover crop, whether we terminate it with a roller or a herbicide, one of the two, um, we'll pull in another sample and see how many of those nutrients have become available from the dead cover crop residue. And that'll give us a good baseline on how we can manage our nitrogen levels from that point. Um, and like I said, it's all kind of, uh, it, it's all kind of shot in the dark. All tests are, none are perfect, you know, and, and the soil is so dynamic. I mean, every, you know, millimeter of the soil is different. I mean, protozoa and, and, you know, most bacteria and fungal strands are so tiny we can't even see them in the naked eye, of course. So it's just, it's rapidly changing all the time. So we just have to keep that in mind too. So if I take a test and we've been dry for three weeks, I have to realize that the test is not going to be the same once we get a rain because of CO2 respiration rates and things like that. Um, you know, we use the PLFA to see where the fungal bacteria ratio is. We mostly use that as a baseline to see how far we can come when we've been in this system for four or five years. Uh, we also, um, I guess, I like the eye test. I can tell whether soil has pretty good structure or not. It doesn't matter your organic matter. If you don't have that aggregate stability and aggregates down, you know, down deep, you can't buy soil health. That's what I try to tell the guys that I help is you cannot buy it. It doesn't matter how much you pay for You can buy every biological there is out there. You can't buy soil health. You have to follow the principle. That living root is so key you know, um, and to making this entire system work. So the eye test is probably the test I use the most. And I would say that we, we always have shovels in every, all of our equipment. I learned that from Gabe and that's been, that's been absolutely huge for us in the learning process. I think that's fantastic. And would you say it's accurate to say you can't buy soil health, but you can grow it? Oh, that is perfect. I love that. Yes, that's absolutely <laughs> perfect. Oh my gosh. Okay. Macaulay, that was amazing. And thank you so much for your time. And I just, I, good luck to you guys. I think what you're doing is awesome and continue to spread that good word. And, and I also want to thank you for being a part of the Soil Solutions podcast. Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate you joining us today. And for more soil health information from High Plains Journal, please sign up, hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the page. I look forward to growing together.